Welcome to Conversations with Conscious Enterprises, where we're exploring the evolution of consciousness in business. Matt Schechner is the global CEO of Advertising Week, a platform where businesses and brands are discussing what he calls society's real issues in a collective of conferences, seminars, special events, and concerts across the globe in New York City, Mexico City, London, Tokyo, Sydney, and Johannesburg. But prior to bringing together international professionals for Advertising Week, Matt fostered an entrepreneurial drive and work ethic, doing everything from washing dishes to working at the Atlanta Chamber of Commerce, and then starting his first agency during the emergence of sports marketing. If you're looking for inspiration, advice, and wisdom from a master networker who has created a global community, bringing together many tens of thousands to congregate internationally, well, this is a conversation you'll want to listen to carefully, and we hope you'll also share. In this conversation, we discuss Matt's super interesting career trajectory to Advertising Week, the surprising reason he focused on advertising, his thoughts on corporate responsibility around data and privacy issues, the importance of opportunities to connect on a human level with other people, and how Advertising Week has become a platform for business and social impact. Please enjoy this conversation and please share it with anyone else you think would like it. And please follow Conscious Enterprises on social media. We're on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. And you can always find us in all the useful links and resources from this conversation, as well as information about our next live events at www.conscious.enterprises. Lord Matthew Schechner. Always an honor to be upon the Lordship. Oh, please. Great to see you, Alex. <laughs> Thank you for having me here in global headquarters of Advertising Week. Yes, indeed. It's always really exciting um, to come in here um, after working with you guys on and off throughout the years and seeing your knocking down walls and expanding for new faces mm -hmm. and new desks and everything. So that's really cool. Yeah. Keep going and growing. Yeah. Um, so. You are in how many countries now, Advertising Well, 2019 will be in six. Six countries. The flagship is here in New York, and we just finished our 15th year. Wow. Looking back a few months ago, so next year, of course, will be year 16. Uh, we're heading into year seven in London, year four in Tokyo. Our second year is in both Mexico City and Sydney, and I'm very excited that we are launching Advertising Week Africa which will be in Johannesburg, and that will be late October of 2019. So exciting. That's a huge one. Yes, indeed. Awesome. Um, so we have a lot of ground I kind of want to cover with you, um, starting with your personal career. Um, I would love to know, what was your first job? Mm -hmm. Were you always entrepreneurial? And how did that lead you to advertising? Well, I went to Emory um, in Atlanta. I graduated in 1986. And Emory bred professionals. Every single one of my friends became a doctor, a lawyer, or an accountant, and all went on for some graduate school. And my initial plan was to be a lawyer. And I remember a very vivid conversation with my advisor, a poli-sci teacher, who I liked a lot, Wayne Selfridge. And we were sitting in Cox Hall, the dining hall at Emory University, and talking about, you know, what do you want to do? And he said, uh, well, do you want to be a lawyer? 
And I said, not really. So he said, well, why do you want to go to law school? And I said, I guess I don't. Oh, interesting. And it was sort of that simple, a conversation. Yeah. Uh, and I always interned. I've always worked since I was 12 years old. You know, my mom used to cut out newspaper articles for me. And, you know, here's a job delivering the penny saver. And I, that was my first job. I literally made one penny. Oh, my God. For everyone. I was a free, like, old classified ads thing. I'm sure it's gone now. Yeah. Um, and then I worked delivering the New York Post. Okay. And then I started my first, you know, what I would consider my real jobs. You know, working in bagel stores all over Queens, baking bagels, and I worked in a deli, and I worked in a pet store, and West 8th Street, American Kennels in Greenwich Village, and I sold Chipwich ice cream on the street one summer, which was another newspaper article my mother found for me that I followed up on, and all kinds of different jobs, you name it. You know, cook, wash dishes, um, uh, waiter, you know, you name it. Yeah. Always work. Um, but then when it came, came time for a career, um, I was sort of able to build on things that I was interested in. And while I was at Emory, I interned with the Atlanta Chamber of Commerce. And I got to see, they had a, a group called Sports 2000. Okay. Um, and the idea was to make Atlanta the sports capital of America by the year 2000. Okay. This was about 1984. It was right after the LA Olympics. And all of a sudden, the modern business of sports marketing was sort of emerging. And that's when IMG really became a powerhouse, and some of the other big sports marketing firms at that time, like ProServe and Advantage. And all of a sudden, there was an epiphany amongst major cities that sports should be treated as economic development. Mm. So my first job out of college, which also came from a newspaper article that my mom found for me, yeah. um, I worked for something called the Commission on the Year 2000, okay. another futuristic entity. Okay. And the commission was appointed by Mayor Koch, who was a legendary mayor of yeah. New York City, to plot a course for the future of New York. Okay. And it was every area, economic development, transportation, healthcare, demographics, education, waterfront development and really looking 15 or so years out, what was New York going to be like, and what did the city need to do to be ready for what it was going to be like. Okay. And how could you capture opportunities that had fallen by the wayside, like for example, as New York transitioned, and many American cities and global cities transitioned as from you know, the old shipping business changed and where goods came from. So way back when, yeah. all the eastern ports of the United States were very big yeah. because all the goods came from Europe. Oh. And as the world economy changed and everything was coming in from Asia, all of a sudden places like Seattle and Tacoma yeah. became much more important and places like New York became less important. Yeah. So a lot of that was abandoned around the waterfront. So how do you reuse and take control of your waterfront in a different yeah. way. So through that whole thing, I met people in the mayor's office okay. and was able to convince them, hey, Atlanta had this great thing called Sports 2000. We're losing teams. If you think about the Meadowlands, yeah. that's all there because other places were asleep. Right, and right. while it doesn't really matter that the Jets and Giants play in New Jersey versus New York, I mean, we're sitting here yeah. Where our office is at Stillwell, a block yeah. from Madison Square Garden, from Madison Square Garden to the Meadowlands is literally seven miles. Right. It's not a big deal. Or is it? 
because all the tax money from every ticket that's sold, every hot dog that's sold, every beer that's sold, where does that tax money go now? New Jersey, right? not to New York. Right. So it does matter. Yeah. And so, make a long story short here, I convinced the city to start something called the New York City Sports Commission. Okay. And at the age of 23, so now 31 years ago, yeah. I was appointed the first executive director of the Sports Commission for New York City. Wow, I did not know this. So that's so really, my yeah. first job was for the commission in the year 2000 as yeah. a policy analyst. Yeah. That was the last, a little under two years. And then yeah. the report came out and the job was finished. Okay. Um, and then I parlayed that and um, a number of people in the Koch administration um, recognized that what I was saying was right. Yeah. And because it wasn't a priority, Right. because Mayor Koch knew less about sports than any grown man or woman you've ever met, okay. <laughs> it didn't become a patronage oh, thing. Oh, yeah. And they said, all right, give it to that kid. Right. And that's literally what they said. Get that kid. Right, you're 23, yeah. And I, you know, they gave me a desk and a rotary phone and Oh you know, God. and I was off to the races. How cool! Yeah. So from penny savers to policy, yeah. to, and then how did you end up um, doing advertising week? So um, my career was very varied. Yeah. The sports commission we built up over eight years into something very substantial, and the original goal was to bid for the Olympics, and ironically. Um, when Atlanta got it, that of course knocked us out. Okay. You know, the Olympics were not going to come back to North America twice. Right. But we looked around and said, what else is out there that might be interesting to bid on that's sort of a big goal? And um, we set our sights on the Goodwill Games, which is gone now, but the Goodwill Games had a very good run. It was started by Ted Turner to bridge the Olympic boycotts, as you might recall, because of the, ironically, in political history, mm -hmm. geopolitical history, we did not go to the 1980 Moscow Olympics, United oh, States yeah. and our Western allies protesting the Soviet Union invasion of Afghanistan. Oh, Interesting in yes, context with the present day. And, um, and then they paid us back and the Soviet bloc nations did not go to the 84 Olympics in LA. Okay. So there were boycotts and you have to go back to 76 and Montreal, yeah. you know, to find competition between us right. in the summer games. Right. So Ted Turner started the Goodwill Games mm -hmm. to bridge those Olympic boycotts. I see. And the first one was 86 in Moscow, 90 in Seattle, mm -hmm. 94 was in St. Petersburg, Russia, and I led the bid for New York and we won the 1998 Goodwill Games. And I was able to get Long Island, New York City, and the Meadowlands to all work together because we needed all of the buildings. Huge, yeah. You know, all the arenas, yeah. everything else to make it all work. We lobbied for and got about $30 million to build an Olympic pool. Oh, wow. Um, that is still there today. Where? In Eisenhower Park. Oh, cool. I want them to do it all in Flushing Meadow. Yeah. And the politics were too tough. You couldn't get the land. Yeah. And there were blades of grass in Flushing Meadow Park that probably no one has stepped on since the World's Fair. <laughs> yeah. But, it, you know, community, right. it's just tough. Right. So Nassau County and Eisenhower Park, right next to the Nassau Coliseum and Hofstra University, right. which were very prominent in the plan also, and our track stadium was right there. Mm -hmm. So Nassau said, here and they gave us the land and a long-term commitment to maintain the pool, and then we got money from the state. Okay. Um, and I still remember we had a press conference at the Morgan Library with Ted Turner and Governor Mario Cuomo yeah. and all the Nassau County political leaders, and it was wonderful, and that pool yeah. is still there 
today. So, cool. so I did that. Mm -hmm. Then when the, when Giuliani came in, he decided that the sports commission should be a patronage thing. Okay. And he effectively wrecked it. Oh wow. And it never came back. So all he did was destroy something that was nonpartisan, huh. not political. Yeah. And not only did we do big sexy things like the Goodwill Games, yeah. but you know, we saved an amateur boxing club in the South Bronx. Yeah. You know, we did a lot of stuff that affected regular New Yorkers. Yeah. You know, some very high profile, like working with the New York City Roadrunners Club on the New York Marathon, bringing NBA and NHL All-Star games here, the Goodwill Games, which I mentioned, but a lot of things that would never make the press that, yeah. you know, were just, you know, you needed an advocate yeah, yeah, and help people. Totally. So Giuliani wrecked all that. Yeah. Uh, never came back. Really? So there's nothing like that today? No. And, um, uh, and I opened my own business. Okay. So my first company was called Empire Sports and Entertainment. Okay. Because um, much more of my background was really in sports. Yeah. And um, did all kinds of projects. Yeah. I produced a show off Broadway. Oh, uh, Because the no head, you know of, all the theaters. head of Gaylord Entertainment, which owns the Grand Ole yeah. Opry, used to be president of Madison Square Garden. Mm -hmm. He was one of my original board members and a great mentor to me, a guy named Dick Evans. Yeah. So. Um, I ended up doing that um, with Ken Sunshine, who's been a longtime friend, and his firm, Sunshine Sachs, has done our right. PR for Advertising Week now for over a dozen years. Um, I did a lot of work in marketing and sponsorship, some PR, some intergovernmental affairs. Yeah. So it was all different projects, no two the same, mm -hmm. but all things where I could you know, deliver value to someone. Somewhere along the line, I met a woman named Abby Hirschhorn who worked for DDB. Okay. And um, she called me in the summer of '02 and said, My boss is a guy named Ken Case, who I didn't know. Okay. Um, he's the president of DDB, which I knew of, but really didn't do any business with, you know, big Omnicom creative agency. Yeah. And, um, and he said, She said, She's the chair of the four A's. Ken is the chair of the four A's. Like, I don't know what the four A's is. Yeah. I know two A's is if you drink too much. <laughs> Three A's is who you call if you have a flat tire. Yeah. You know, on the BQE. And she explains to me that it's the American Association of Advertising Agencies. Yeah. In effect, the, the trade uh, organization, or, you know, union's not the right word, but the trade organization mm -hmm. for both creative and media agencies in America. And she said, Ken's view is that we know the industry's on the edge of a lot of technologically driven change. But back in 02, nobody knew what was really coming. Right. You know, Mark Zuckerberg was either a high school senior or a college freshman. Yeah. You know, YouTube was 2007. The iPhone was 2006. Yeah. You know, nobody was talking about artificial intelligence or data and analytics or blockchain or mm -hmm. augmented reality or virtual reality or, you know, the programmatic buying of media. None of those topics existed yeah. in any form back then. You know, there was no social media. Right, right. Uh, and, uh, but we know something's coming. Mm -hmm. The industry has chronically low morale. There is no single event that galvanizes the whole industry, young people all the way up to the C-suite, and brings them all together. And then a couple other things that were sort of big systemic problems around talent, around diversity of the industry. And she said, we're trying to think of a big idea. We went to somebody at Omnicom who actually knew, um, and he came up with nothing. <laughs> Could you think of something? Yeah. 
And this may not be how they teach it in the London School of Economics or, yeah. or at Harvard, but my business model has always been sort of a blend of the things that pay and things that you chase that might pay. Mm. And so I said, this seems like something worth yeah. trying to figure out. So I worked on a bunch of ideas and came up with some of my own, borrowed a little bit from Tribeca Film Festival, which had just launched a couple years before that. Mm -hmm. um, uh, looked at Fashion Week, looked at other big industry yeah. events, came up with a set of ideas. Right from the beginning, have always been very big on the wear. And one of the companies that I did work for when I was, you know, when I was Empire, uh, sports and entertainment was Radio City. Right. Under the old owners, Radio City used to have a company, Radio City Productions. Okay. And it was a production company that you could hire to do events having nothing to do with the Radio City building. So yeah. I was part of that team that did, um, we did the opening of Arthur Ashe Stadium in 1997. We did a huge thing for Pepsi, a private gig for 4,000 global Pepsi executives tied to their centennial in 1999 in Hawaii. And we had Riverdance, Ray Charles, the Rolling Stones, so, you know, big stuff. Yeah. And um, so, and the president liked me, Arlen, and he wanted me to be in the in the in Radio City. Yeah. So, so well, I don't need an office. I have an office. Oh no, I Schechner, I want you here. Yeah. So he said, come with me. And right below his office on the seventh floor, there was a great office yeah. on the sixth floor that had a, its own air conditioner. It had its own bathroom. I'm like. Oh, that looks okay. You got me. <laughs> so I peaked too soon. I had my best office 20 years ago. <laughs> nice. And um, so I spent a lot of time in the building. And Radio City is a wonderful building. Yeah. And if you left after 6 o'clock, you used to have to go out under the stage and go out the stage door. And it was endlessly interesting yeah. to you know walk under the stage of Radio City and things right. like that. And in that building, there's a wonderful little space called the Roxy Suite. Okay. The original impresario who created the Rockettes back in the 1930s was a guy named Roxy Rothafel. A guy? Yeah, yeah, that was his name. Okay. And he used to live there. And there was an apartment in Radio City, which the current owners still have. Now it's owned by uh, Madison Square Garden Company and Jim Dolan. And so this Roxy suite is this wonderful little Art Deco suite. Yeah. And even the most learned New Yorkers, very few people know that it's there. Yeah, never heard of it. Um, so, cool. so we actually did an advertising week event there a couple of years ago with Justin Timberlake. Oh, for something cool. really special for like 6065. It's, you know, yeah. friends, right above the marquee nice. on 6th Avenue. And so the very first meeting about advertising week, just based on an instinct that the where would matter. Yes. Was at the Roxy Suite. How cool. And I pitched a bunch of ideas to Ken Case, the chairman who Abby yeah. had mentioned, and he liked it and then said, I want you to meet the guy that is the paid guy who runs the forays, kind of Birch Drake. And so I met with Birch a few months later, that would have been December of 02. Okay. And then around May of 03, one of Birch's people called me and said, we want to go forward with this. We're either going to do a search for a director or hire you. Are you interested? Nice. So I said, well, I worked on the thing for seven months for free. <laughs> right. So sure, I'm interested. Yeah. So we agreed. Yeah. And I said, but if it works over time, I want the opportunity to run it like a business. You yeah. Know, not a trade association. Right. Um, and I went to Mayor Bloomberg and uh, very easily yeah. on the merits. 
convinced him to host what became the first opening gala at Gracie Mansion. Oh, wow. And we had done an economic impact study that showed how important the advertising media business was to the economy. Mm -hmm. It's only grown more important. You know, you look what Google just investing a billion dollars in their, you know, campus downtown in Chelsea. Yeah. You know, so this is before the ad tech boom had even happened. Right. And it was still a big business. Right. Um, so we had the first opening gala at Gracie Mansion in 2004 in September, Mayor was This is all under the four A's. Yeah, we were, yeah. we were sort of an extension yeah. of that. Interesting. And, uh, uh, and then it went well enough to try again. Yeah. And the first year, the four A's put up some seed money, and um, each of the holding companies, Omnicom, IPG, Publicists, I think, all put up a hundred thousand each. Mm -hmm. WPP said no. Okay. Havas, I think, put up fifty. Okay. And the four A's put up about half a million, and then I raised about another half a million. Okay. The so second you had year, all the hitters in there. Yeah. The second year, all the yeah. subsidy went away. Okay. But we had a loss, mm. and the four A's said, "We'll cover the loss, but that's it." Okay. And then. Starting in 06, it was my responsibility. I had to raise all the money and at yeah. least break even, right. um, which I did. Wow. And um, then somewhere, it was around 9 or 10, we started a meaningful conversation about changing the structure yeah. so we could own and operate it as a business. Very and cool. that took a lot of time because we went from being a not-for-profit to a for-profit. So you have to have an independent yeah. valuation. The transaction had to be approved. You know, all the right, had to be done the right way, right? Which right. we did. So it took yeah. a number of years, and then Lance, who's been with me since the beginning, my partner. Yeah. Um, we uh, took ownership of it about formal ownership five six years ago. Okay. And that's when the growth really accelerated. So yeah. that's when we went from just New York to London, Tokyo, Mexico City, Sydney, now Johannesburg. Right. You know, and there are several other markets that we're looking at around the world, and we've also developed a whole year round content business right. all built off that thought leadership wow, platform. Wow, so interesting. Love that backstory. Yeah. Never would have known. There so you go. cool. There you go. Um, so it sounds like, so why advertising is one of my questions for you. It sounds like you're more like just like a business you person know, it's, Yeah, than, I, I am. The irony is yeah. I've never actually worked in advertising. Yeah. So um, I did have one year uh, in there where I started a sports and entertainment practice for yeah. Helen Melton, the PR firm. Okay. Um, you know, it was just an opportunity. Yeah. And what we have developed is an approach, you know, that marries thought leadership on the business of the business by day and then show business and various experiences at night. And for right. the senior people, those are very high-end dinners and special places you know, going back to the first meeting in the Roxy Suite. Right. So our dinners are not in the Hilton or the Sheraton right. or even a fancy place like the Grosvenor House in London. Yeah. You know, we're in places like Kensington Palace right. or Lambeth Palace or right. Abbey Road Studios or Sotheby's here in New York. We're doing a dinner in Sydney next year on the stage of the State Theatre, which is a beautiful, beautiful theatre, as Amazing. pretty as Radio City yeah. in Sydney. So. You know, that where, that environment matters. The opening gala over the years has been in places like St. Paul's Cathedral and Zozoji Temple in Tokyo and the Sydney Opera House. Yeah. Um, so we've sort of kept that mantra. Yeah. Um, you understand how people, how to give people an experience. Yeah, really and, and that has nothing yeah. to do with advertising. That's exactly so right. So the subject matter happens to be yeah. 
advertising, creative media, brands, the technology part. But, but I think our approach could work really in any industry right. where you have a large constituency of people that are trying to learn and be smart and trying to learn about what's coming. Right. And then who like to meet with each other and network and engage and yeah. you know the social experiential part of life, which as digital has become more prevalent, I would argue that the experience has only become more important. Right. Because as people, we still crave, you know, interaction. that interaction. So no matter how much time we spend, you know, with our thumbs looking at a right. you know, an iPhone or an iPad or whatever else it may be, I think the human piece is still very important. Totally agree. Very interesting. Um so you may arguably be one of the most connected people in the marketing and advertising industry, regardless of whether you started this from an advertising perspective, um, because you're bringing you know hundreds of thought leaders together. Um, mm -hmm. You know what is it? Maybe thousands of yeah, attendees of, to, a, to a, lot, a lot of people. Yeah, each of these weeks. Um, how have you been so successful in growing such an international network around the globe? You know, I, I think. New York, the goal, very simply, and this is the goal in all the markets, is for the one next one to be better than the last. Right. And what's happened over time is Advertising Week has very much become a reflective mirror of what's happening in the industry. Mm -hmm. So, you know, this foundation of thought leadership, and there was, a, I remember a very early argument with Birch. We used to do a lot more with various industry trade associations, okay. and we still do. But in the beginning, we were very dependent on them for programming. Okay. So the ad club, the magazine publishers, the newspaper association, all the you know genre-specific parts of the industry. Mm -hmm. And um, I remember that Birch wanted just what they did to be the whole thought leadership program. Okay. And on instinct, I felt we needed to have something that we owned and curated that was unique, mm -hmm. that was not dependent on the trade groups. And that ended up, you know, not every decision ended up being right, but that one ended up being right. And that enabled us to build this global franchise built oh, on thought leadership. I see. So what started to happen, because everybody all around the world has the same challenges, and because the programming was viewed as very strong, people started to come from other places. And um, frankly, I, we had no idea. You know, our data capture in the early days was very poor. Okay. Um, you know, if the room was full, we did our job. Right. Whether they were from New Jersey, New England, or Newfoundland, right. you know, we didn't know. Right. And nor did we care, by the way. Right, you just wanted people in seats. Sure. Yeah. So, um, but over time it became clear that the reputation of Advertising Week was beyond New York. Mm -hmm. um, other parts of the state, other parts of Canada, Mexico, Latin America, Europe. And so we started to meet people from other parts of the world and um, that led to an initial opportunity in London. Um, where we worked with and still very close to a, a woman named Kathleen Saxton who has a company called The Lighthouse and she was the one who first reached out about would you ever think about coming to London and a lot of this stuff happens that way yeah Australia happened because somebody reached out from Sydney is actually originally from the UK Clive who years later fast forward is now our director right. for advertising with Gay Pack in Sydney 
And he reached out and said, hey, I've been coming to Advertising Week for years in London. There's nothing like this in Sydney. Yeah. Would you ever think about coming to Sydney? So you never sought out to expand this to other countries? Was it, it was just like it happened? I think we're growth oriented. Yeah. But as it's happened in yeah. each market, the, uh, if I would say there was one common thread, it would be, have you ever thought about this? Yeah. Like, well, not really, but I don't know, maybe. Let's see what that might look like. Right, right. And I think we're, we always, as a company, believe in looking people in the eye. Right. And you have to go and look. So whether it's going out to San Francisco and sitting with you know global partners of ours, like we did last week at companies like Adobe and Facebook, right. um, just to go and see the principles and sit and have you know, a meal or a cup of coffee, you know, right. we do that. Exhibit A, a couple days ago, still doing that 15 years later. And same with a new market, so they'll say, you know, would you come to Sydney and look? Yeah. And eventually I said, okay. Yeah. And I was in Japan, it was the end, and then <laughs> I, just I said, you look on the map, and like, okay, I think I can go from here to there. Right. And um, that's also what happened with Africa. There was a group that reached out to us a few years ago. Interesting. They came to New York, we had a meeting, seemed real. They said, would you come to London? They did. So we've been working with our partners who are working with us on Advertising Week yeah. Africa now about three years. Wow, And so the three first years one will be now. in 19, yeah, two, three years, you know, yeah. in each market. Um, but very often it starts with a would you ever think about doing it here? Totally. Well, I don't know, maybe. Let's see what that might look yeah. like. And not every place makes sense. Right. Um, what are some places that didn't make sense? Well, there was an outreach from Italy that yeah. came and went. There was yeah. a couple things from Brazil that came and went. Um, there's an active dialogue still with Singapore. That's oh, interesting. Cool. Um, we've been trying to figure out China. Oh. And Lance and I have both been there a couple times. Yeah. Um, Beijing, Shanghai have not figured out the right point of entry okay. yet, but we'd like to, if totally. we could. Um, Tokyo began with our relationship with Dentsu mm -hmm. um, way back when. So they're all different, but I think we're always looking you know, yeah. for opportunities to, to grow. Great. Um, what would you suggest as a master networker that you've become around the globe, um, what can you suggest to other professionals that are trying to grow their network? Well. Uh, I think you have to look people in the eye. Okay. I think the you know the beauty of you know living in a connected world is you're always on and you can reach yeah. out. But I think you know you've got to do the work. Get on a plane. Get in your car. Get on a bus. Yeah. Get on a gun. Go. You got to go. You got to get out of your office. And um, uh, I, I think. You know, there's still no replacement for just doing that work. Right. Uh, and, you know, if you're trying to break into an industry, you know, go to this conference, go to that conference, meet somebody. You know, very early on in my career when I was director of the sports commission, a couple days after I started, I convinced the city to let me go to this big sports event conference called, I think it's gone now, it's called the International Sports Summit. There was a woman, Monica kind of last name to something that she ran it yeah and that was one of the big sports marketing conferences you'd go to the international okay. sports summit 
And I think I started on like November 12 or 13, 14, something like that. Yeah. And three days later, I was on a Pan Am plane. Yeah. Going to LA. Yeah. To go to this conference. I don't remember how I rented a car because I was under 25. Um, I don't remember how I found the hotel because there was no Waze or Google Maps. Right. You know, I think I'd never really, I'd never been to Los Angeles before. Right. So, um, but I went and I listened and I met people and I remember I was on um, at, the, at the networking, you know, drinks at the end of the day. I was yeah. standing on a line and I was talking to the guy next to me. And he ended up being a guy who wrote for the Wall Street Journal named Hal Lancaster. Oh, okay. And Hal and I had a conversation, and um, we were talking about how cities had recognized, you know, that sports was worth paying attention to from an economic development vantage. Right. That was our conversation. And I ended up getting quoted on the front page of the Wall Street Journal in November of 1987. And what I said was very innocuous. No, not innocuous. It was like, I remember the quote. It was like, there's an unquenchable thirst for sports in America's major cities. Yeah. Not controversial at all. Yeah. But I worked for the mayor's office. And I came back, and the deputy mayor, I was summoned to City Hall. Who told you you could talk to the Wall Street Journal? Oh, wow. And, and I'm like, what did I say? You know, yeah. I, didn't, I didn't know, and I, you know, I really didn't. It yeah. was very innocent what I... Right. said and there was no publicity grab right. or anything like that it was just random that I was on this line yeah. with this guy Hal but I think in some ways it wasn't random yeah. because I put myself in a position to be out there yeah so you gotta be out there yeah um, I also think there's something to be said for you know do what you think you should do and then if you have to apologize to someone later Right. Don't apologize. Right. So I, I have uh, you know issued many apologies over the years <laughs> I'm sure. for um, you know perhaps stepping yeah. uh, out of bounds a little bit. Right. It's but uh, I think you've got to put yourself out there. Yeah, the face to face I think is huge. Um, what keeps you going every day on a personal level? I mean, you've grown so much. You've got so much full time staff now. You're bopping around the globe. Um, what's like your drive for expansion to all these countries? Where does this drive come from? Well, I, I think it's sort of like if you open a restaurant and you develop a good recipe and people like to come and eat there, yeah. that's very fulfilling. And I think for us, we've been able to create a recipe that works sort of everywhere. Yeah. Um, and you obviously it's all, you know, nuanced and um, also on instinct, I always knew that it had to feel like it grew from the earth every place where we are. Mm, so if yeah. we tried to rip the trees out of Central Park and say, this is how we do it, and we drop them in right. Hyde Park, the roots would never grow. Yeah. So everywhere we've gone, we've planted new trees and watered them so that it feels authentic. Right. And it is authentic right. to every community that we're in. Um, some of that is the selection of where. So in Johannesburg, mm -hmm. we're not going to the safe, easy choice Right. which would be the convention center in Santon, which is a suburb yeah. of Johannesburg, we're going into Center City, Johannesburg, yeah. and doing it, you know, what I consider to be the real way so to cool. do it. So is that challenge for authenticity in all these different places? I like that. that inside too? Yeah, I think, I think, you know, the search for the where, and yeah. I still, yeah. you know, I love that. I'm yeah. negotiating now with a friend of mine, an ambassador theater group, and we're trying to do the opening night in London, 
in March on stage at the Lyceum Theater, mm. you know, in London. So I still like yeah. stuff like that. Totally. But um, that's what also makes the difference. I think. Yeah, yeah, and I think we're really driven to constantly reinvent the thing. Yeah. There are very few things that we've done do twice. I mean, in 26, I think we've done 26 advertising weeks now all around the world going back to the beginning. Wow. The 25th anniversary opening gallows at the Sydney Opera House, which I never imagined. Yeah. Um, but in those 26 years, um, the opening gala has been 24 different places. Okay. We okay. repeated two over all those years. Wow. Radio City. Okay. We did twice. It's a good one to repeat. We love Radio City. Yeah. And in personal history and totally, you know. Yeah. And then we did an op our opening gala the second year in London in 2014 at St James's Palace. And then we're on the occasion of our fifth anniversary, the royal family invited us back to St. James's Palace. And nice. I felt it was poor form to say no. Of course. So we have been to St. James's Palace all. twice yeah. and to read it. But other than that, you right. know, we never go back to the same place twice. Yeah. There are very few things that will repeat. You know, yeah. we've had a lot of concerts and comedy, and the talent always varies, the evening talent varies. Yeah. So I think the drive to continue to elevate. Right. To continue to surprise. Um, I certainly think going to new places and, you know, as the platform has evolved, Advertising Week has also become a place where we talk about a lot of real issues. Yes. So Emma Stone was on stage this year with us in New York talking about growing up with anxiety yes. and, you know, so a lot of conversations around mental health and wellness. Yes. We had on stage in New York this year Nikki Six from Motley Crue with the Surgeon General of the United States of America oh, wow. talking about the opioid crisis. And Nikki so Six, important. 17 years ago, actually was dead for a few minutes oh my God. from a drug overdose, wow. was brought back to life, um, and has then become a big advocate yeah. for talking about this. And I think one of the things that's reflective of general society is the first step towards making an impact on an issue is talking about it. Yes. And so, you know, if we're, we're, we're able to elevate the conversation around, you know, mental health for young people, around the opioid crisis, around other issues like gun safety, yes. where we did something this year with a nonpartisan group that's Democrats and Republicans who are in favor of safety for guns. So, you know, I don't want to yes. get the NR, you know, I'm not trying to start a fight with the NRA, <laughs> but I think leveraging the f platform yes. to talk about all those things is very important and I, and I really like that a lot. Yeah, that brings me to my next question. Um, I would love to talk about um, the DNAD Awards, which is about social impact and all these other topics mm -hmm. that you just mentioned. Um, first of all, for people that don't know, what is the DNAD Awards? How did it come to be a part well, of advertising? You know, we've been talking about real issues on our stage for yeah. years, um, whether it's diversity, yeah. whether it's um, Back in 05, I remember we had Robert F. Kennedy Jr. talking about river keepers, which was cleaning up the Hudson River, which oh, GE wow. had polluted terribly way yes. back when. So I think that goes back to the very beginning yeah. for us, is leveraging our platform to talk about those types of things. I certainly think that's increased right. in the last few years. So the way uh, Impact started is um, a lot of people have said to us, why don't you start an award show for advertising? Because can is an award show and there's a yeah. thought leadership program as part of it as well but their business is built around a pay to enter 
Creative Awards. Oh, I didn't realize that. Okay. And there's a fairly big business out there of paid to enter yes. Creative Awards in our industry. Um, and I never felt that that was the right thing for us. Okay. That there are a lot of them already, and I didn't feel that anything we could do there would be additive in any way. And I also think long term, looking at where the industry is today, I don't know that that pay to enter model is going to continue to thrive going forward. Okay. I think they're going to have some, some challenges there. But I always knew that if we could come up with an award show with something that was unique to us and to right. our, D, our DNA, you know, uh, we would think about it. So we met the folks at DNAD in London who, after Cannes, the second most prestigious global creative award is the DNAD award in London. Okay. And in some places, you could argue they're sort of Hertz and Avis okay. for in the global creative. And are they inherently tied to social impact? No, the okay. regular DNAD awards, the mothership for them in London is a creative. I see. Uh, and design. Okay. So it has nothing to do with impact per Got se. It. Okay. Um, it's just like all the other creative awards. Yeah. Basically. Yeah. And you could argue more integrity, and they are not yeah. for profit. All the money they make goes back into the industry, as opposed to CAN, which is owned by private equity. Not knocking either, they're just different. Right. So, um, but we started a conversation around creating something unique mm -hmm. um, around social impact. So our categories are things like health and wellness, diversity and inclusion, sustainability, responsible production, um, as opposed to you know creative award for best new mouthwash. Right. So right. I think there are plenty of people that are recognizing that type of work. Right. Um, but I think what we felt is it was a very natural extension of our commitment to leverage the Advertising Week platform to talk about real issues. And so we've done it for three years now and um, I'm sure impact will continue yeah. you know, for us. That's fantastic. Um, from your perspective, how do you see social impact emerging in not just the marketing or advertising industry, but I guess in business as a whole? I think businesses this? are very conscious yeah. that, you know, there's an expression, all politics is local. Yeah. And I think the brands and companies that recognize and do things to help the communities on a small level are very important. And you know, I think you gravitate towards brands that have a story or that are doing something to make people's lives better. Mm -hmm. So um, I think there's still a lot of lip service that's paid to that. Yeah. But I think when you look at a company like Unilever and they said, hey, we're gonna wrap a lot of our brands around sustainability. And Paul Pullman, who just retired, but will actually be speaking at Advertising Week in March in London, the CEO there, and Keith Weed, their CMO, is terrific. You know, I've heard Paul give the big speech about Unilever's brand position in the world and his beliefs. And the net-net is that the brands that are wrapped around sustainability make more money. Yes. So the two are not in conflict. Right. And my hope is that more and more brands, and it's up to business to lead, not government, um, that recognize that doing good is also good for business, that more of that will continue to right. evolve as central parts 
of business and marketing and go-to-market strategies. Um, but the world is changing. You know, small and mid-sized businesses. Um, you know, as forces like Amazon rise, in some parts of the world get stronger. Inevitably, that means other parts of the world get weaker. Right. And you know, among the issues that our you know elected leaders are not really looking at is the impact of e-commerce on retail. You know, on local communities. You know, my town's got a lot of empty stores now. That's not really? good. Yeah. So, and that's a phenomenon that's everywhere. Right. You know, Macy's is right behind us. Right. You know, if they go the way of Sears, yeah. you know, that's not that good. It happened to Lord and Taylor not that long ago, too. Yeah. Gone. Mm-hmm. Right? Right in this area here where yeah. we are in Herald Square, you know, you used to have gimbals, you used to have, you know, there were a lot of, they're gone. Yeah. Now, some of that is the natural, and others have emerged. Target, which is right. a great partner of ours, I think, is, you know, is very conscious of the experience in the stores, and right. I think. They're actually doing really well, so yeah. I don't think you can't be successful. Mm-hmm. But I think the challenges are different. Right. And when you walk into a store, and you know, good luck finding someone to help you. Yeah. Um, and the experience is not good. Yeah. You may hesitate to go back there, and you say, "Oh, I'll just buy it on the click, 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 and I'll just buy it that way." Right. So, you know, I think the world has changed, but for consumers, brands that act with a purpose and recognize things that are important to them, I think you know that's a big pathway towards success. Absolutely. Um, so we're living at a time where one could argue that overconsumption and oversaturation of advertising and overexposure to media are negatively shaping society, what we're talking about with, you know, everyone's got their thumbs on their phones and their eyeballs on their phones. What are your thoughts on corporate responsibility in the advertising and marketing industry, and what are you seeing some of these agencies do to uphold that? Well, uh, listen, I think we're in some interesting times right now Yeah. around privacy, around data, yes. um, and basically whether we as consumers, you know, and let's put us on the whole, realize it or not, Yeah. what we have done is we have accepted a bargain where we are able to use all of this free stuff. Right. And what we have given up or traded for it is our data. So that's what's really happened. Right. You know, um, and in exchange for being able to use, whether it's the big platforms, the Facebooks, the Instagrams, Twitter, Snap, or whether it's just, you know, search and looking for something and, you know, uh, the trade-off for being able to access, you know, on demand, in your hand, on the train, on a plane, wherever you might be, is we've traded our data yes. for that. Because no one that I know has ever read the tiny 2.18 paragraph privacy notice that's buried somewhere at the bottom. Yeah. None of us read that. Right. You sign up, you do this, you do that, right. etc. So I think a very big part of the debate around the industry that impacts the entire industry going forward is going to be around data, privacy, and all of those issues. Mm-hmm. As more and more problems emerge, and what happened to this data, and this was hacked, and you know, meddling from the Russians and the Chinese and, you know, 
500 million dollar 500 million people exposed data from Marriott or whatever the one that just happened Starwood yeah. so this keeps happening right um, whether or not government will be able to get it together I don't know I mean, right. when you see these big public hearings and you see the caliber of the questions that our elected officials ask um, that does not lead you to believe that they're really on top of it and yeah. get it. You know, the EU seems to have yeah. it together a little bit more in right. terms of understanding, you know, the real environment yeah. and landscape. But I think there's a responsibility that, you know, Silicon Valley has in particular and then the other parts of the ecosystem to act. You know, and that's in their interests, it's in our interests, it's in advertisers' interests, it's in agencies' interests. So I think there is a reckoning coming. Yeah. Um, now, will that be a situation where there's another breach, everybody buries their heads in the sand, waits for it to blow over? The nature of the news cycle is that it will blow over. Right. And hope it doesn't happen again. That's sort of what's been happening to some sure. degree. Mm -hmm. um, but it keeps happening. Right. And it's sort of like as the boxer gets up and shakes it off, they get belted again. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I, I think it's a tough, interesting issue. Yeah. Um, I know a lot of the people, you know, pretty senior at a lot of these companies, and, you know, they're very passionate about trying to fix the problem. Yeah. Um, but it's not as simple as, you know, hey, um, you know, my carburetor, you know, broke, right. you know, you bring it's it to a mechanic and yeah. you replace it with a new carburetor and the car runs fine. Yeah. A lot of this stuff is much more complicated. Right. Than yeah. So. Very insightful. Um, so I'd like to ask everyone this question that I interview. Do you consider your business to be successful today and how do you measure success for yourself? Well, I think our product, yeah. you know, continues to be well received and go and grow around the world. So yeah. I think we had a great year. We actually had our holiday dinner last night, yeah. and Lance and I were both very proud of the year yeah. that we put together. That we've grown from three markets to five overnight. You know, yeah. in a span of a year, launching two brand new markets in one calendar year. We've never done that before. Yeah, huge. Um, six next year. We've grown a lot of our other properties. So. Yeah, I think if you're a business owner, your job is to never be satisfied. Okay. And you take a moment or two to say, yeah, that was pretty good this yeah. year for yourself. Um, uh, and, you know, Lance and I both tend to dismiss most of the compliments immediately. <laughs> and we're much, we're much more interested in what didn't go well or what yeah. can we can improve. improve. It doesn't help you. You know, it's very nice. Listen, don't get me wrong. I love yeah. it when our partners are happy. Right. Um, and we are ultimately in the happiness business. You know, yeah. one of the questions I get asked is, are you happy with the way it's going? You know, yeah. when we're in the middle of one of the advertising weeks. And my answer always is, well, if you're happy, I'm happy. Right. That's how this stuff works. That's so true. So if the audience comes, if the rooms are full, if there's engagement, if there's press, yeah. um, you know, then we did our jobs. Yeah. Um, so I think um, we've put ourselves in a good position. Yeah. Um, you know, we've hired a lot of people. You know, that's getting talent right is very mm -hmm. difficult. And I think... We experience the growing pains that any business experiences yeah. where you've got to get the right people in the right positions. And sometimes you get it right and sometimes you get it wrong. Yeah. And when you get it wrong, 
you know, even though somebody may have only been here two months and it didn't work out, yeah. you know, well, there was a few months before looking for that person and then finding someone to replace that person. So a two-month mistake it can often be a six- or an eight-month mistake. Right. You know, or longer. Yeah. So I think we feel very good about the team that we have now here in New York yeah. uh, at uh, headquarters. And globally, as we build teams on the ground in each market, I think building more strength in each market on the ground full time will be very important for us. Mm-hmm. Um, but I feel like we've put ourselves in a good position and we're, you know, ready to go for 2019. Awesome. Um, and the last question that I'll leave everybody with um, from you is what's a valuable piece of advice that you would like to give to other entrepreneurs that are starting businesses today? Well, don't be afraid. Yeah. Um, you know, I think we've got a nice mix of sort of. There's an old expression, moxie, which came from a drink that actually tasted terrible. Okay. And, um, but moxie means, you know, you're bold. Yeah. Right? You have moxie. You're willing to take oh, a chance. Okay. You're willing to put yourself out there. Yeah. And I think you also have to be a little naive. You know, one of the things that you'll hear is, oh, that'll never work, or don't try that, or yeah. that won't work. And very often I've heard that, and I say, well, but maybe we, maybe we will. Yeah. Like I remember very early on when we went to England, all the Brits said, um, you'll never get into Buckingham Palace. Like, that will never happen. Oh, really? And um, on the occasion of our fifth anniversary in Advertising Week, we were honored with a lunch at Buckingham Palace. Yeah. And it was hosted by myself and Prince Andrew, the Duke of York. And I was able to invite 20 industry leaders, yeah. you know, whoever we wanted. And it's all around our support of something the Duke does called Pitch at the Palace, which is a wonderful program to promote British entrepreneurs. Cool. Uh, and I remember all the British captains of industry looking at me, this you know kid, my family's from Brooklyn, I grew up in Queens, yeah. looking at me shaking their heads like, how did this guy, this Yank, <laughs> you know, get us into our place? Right. So I think being, you know, unafraid, don't just think it won't work because everybody else said it won't work. Maybe it will. Um, and, you know, people still crave the experience. So I think the core of what we're doing, building off thought leadership, is as people, you know, we want things that we can look forward to, that we can enjoy while we're there, and talk about it after it's over. And I think that's what we're trying to do, is to give people something to look forward to, to inspire them, um, to expose them to disruptive thinkers, um, to deliver on a promise that we're going to deliver the best and brightest people in any and every subject area you can think of. Um, and I also think there's nothing wrong with making people smile and feel good about the industry that they're in. So that doesn't mean that we aren't talking about tough issues. We absolutely are. Um, we're talking about brand America in the UK. We're talking about the impacts of Brexit on brand Britain and British brands. We're talking about mental health. We're talking about the opioid crisis. We're talking about race in America. We've had D.L. Ugly does his podcast on race with us every year in New York oh, now, yeah. which is very hard-headed. Yeah. So we absolutely are talking about real issues. Yeah. But I think it is all in sort of a, um, you know, a bubble of optimism, if you will. And one of my great friends and mentors who's gone now was a great filmmaker named Bud Greenspan. Bud really invented the genre of the modern day sports documentary. He did all the official films 
for the Olympic Games, going back to the end of World War II, right up until he passed in 2010 after the Vancouver Winter Games. And Bud had this great expression. He said, the media spends 90% of their time on the 10% that's bad. I spend 100% of my time on the 90% that's good. Huh. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Yeah. So I think leveraging our platform to tell great stories yeah. that inspire people, um, that inform people, that enlighten them, that educate them, um, and that I think when Advertising Week leaves after each market, we have made a lot of people feel good about the industry that they're in. Um, and, you know, I think that's great. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Matt. Thank, Thank you for you. having me and for your time. Thank this you. This is great.